0: Katia, do you know anything about peats?
1: I have to admit that I know very, very little, so I'm very excited to learn more. I just know that there's a lot of peats here in Finland, or peatlands and bogs, but that is about the extent of my knowledge.
0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Science Basement Podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Tomas.
1: And I'm your co-host, Katya.
0: And today we'll be diving into the realm of peat. We're joined here by Liam Gotwin. He's doing his PhD in, in peatlands up in, in Thursaw, Scotland. So say hello, Liam. <laughs> hello there.
2: Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll call myself quite an expert yet,
0: but hopefully getting there.
1: We're very pleased to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us.
0: So Liam, w- what is, what is peat, basically? Let's start from the basics. Okay, basically,
2: uh, peat is a quantity of organic matter which hasn't been fully decomposed. Uh, often this happens due to some kind of environmental feature, uh, and very often it's due to it being wet, uh, because as you have organic matter building up, uh, as the plant dies back, uh, the bacteria and microorganisms that would usually break down this organic matter can't fully decompose uh, because it's wet and it becomes anoxic and due to the lack of oxygen, uh, decomposition just slows down. And then, if you have uh, when you have the growing cycle, when you have more growth, then you have a rate of decomposition. You end up with this problem where you just have more and more growth happening on top of dead organic material which can't decompose fast enough and then over time you build up and then you can end up with meters upon meters of organic material which isn't gonna ever really be decomposed uh, just too strongly locked below ground
0: okay and for for people like me who come from from the the tropical Rainforest, um, how would you, how does it look essentially? Oh, you can have uh, peat in the
2: tropics as well. Um, There's some in like uh, Indonesia and the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the Amazon. Uh, But where I live in Scotland, uh, peatlands and peat kind of just look like these big uh, kind of fibrous blocks. But as they get older, they, they become less and less fibrous until they kind of look like a moist fudge cake, when you if you were to cut it out of like a peat core. Uh, and then on the surface, it looks, in Scotland anyway, usually a mix of these kind of mosses called sphagnum moss um, and like moorland heathland, so like a bit of heather and some these quite thick blades of grass, which are a type of sedge. Um, which have anenchymal tissue so that they can survive in the waterlogged conditions.
0: Mm, Cool. And, okay, so we have this this peat and it's um, grown all over the place in Scotland because plants don't decompose over there. Well, they decompose! (laughs) Well, yeah, okay, sorry. They they decompose slowly. Yeah, it's...
2: We have a lot of water, uh, as anyone who knows anything about the UK is, we have a lot of rain and so it's always wet and moist and it's also very cloudy so that stops uh, evaporation and it's quite cool uh, which also slows down decomposition Um, and you get it all over the place in scotland
0: really cool so you have this this boggy like material that is growing all over the place of scotland um why why is it important what role does it play in in the Scottish environment, basically?
2: Well, I suppose the value of it is now changed because historically people used to burn it to the fuel or to make whiskey. Uh, they do still do burn it to make whiskey.
1: I, I didn't know that that was like a thing at all. Wow.
2: I, I think it's almost a necessity that you have to use peat to make whiskey or if it doesn't necessarily count as whiskey. Oh, okay. Uh, then it becomes something like bourbon. Bourbon? A bourbon is a biscuit, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, but most of the value that's put towards it these days is the fact that it's an incredibly good and efficient carbon store. I believe a crazy, it's, it's like peatlands in the UK store more carbon than all of the plant life in the UK currently. Oh, wow. Including all the forest countries. It's something that is really good at locking away carbon and it's really hard to get it back. And the problem with having forests to mitigate climate change is obviously forests are wonderful I love them, but most of the carbon is stored in the stem. But then eventually after a hundred or so years, the tree dies, will decompose and a new tree will grow. So there's kind of becomes a limit of how much carbon a forest could store per hectare. But with a peatland, the peat can just get deeper and deeper and almost a never ending period of time, it can just keep getting deeper, it gets much. It sequesters carbon much more slowly, but if you just left it, it would go for almost, I mean, it's already gone for thousands of years. Cool. And I guess also we value it, which is what my PhD looks at, is the water quality and how we need it to (coughs) monitor and regulate water quality in Scottish Highlands. Uh, So my PhD looks at uh, peatlands land use and the water quality of the rivers that are in peatland catchment because we have Atlantic salmon which spawn in the rivers and they're currently uh, quite rare uh, in terms of there's not many rivers which support large populations that can be uh, caught regularly because there's still at low populations there's salmon farms but there's not this natural population that live in the rivers And they think that maybe if we could restore the peatland and the landscapes, we could improve the water quality and make it a better environment for the natural wildlife in the river to return.
1: How exactly are you kind of studying the salmon populations and the water quality? Like what's kind of your approach and the methods and such?
2: So I'm doing two kinds of studies, which most of my data get, get collected from. One of them is looking at different land uses of the peatland and then monitoring streams which flow through catchments which are dominated by this kind of peatland or peatland peatland land use. In this area, I work with the flow country in Scotland, which is, I believe, the largest blanket peatland in all of Europe. And a blanket bog is just a a bog or peatland which is semi-continuous over an entire landscape. Uh, And I believe it's like 200,000 hectares, it's massive um and i study where there's forestry plantations that were placed on the peatland in like the 1960s uh which was kind of a mistake because the the trees do not grow well on the peatland so the trees are thick and dying constantly and it's just drying out the peatland and then in the end of everything it ends up emitting more co2 than if you had just
0: left it alone and why were the trees put there in the first place then? Uh, was it an ill attempt of carbon capturing? This goes back to World War Two, actually. So during
2: the war, the UK needed its own wood supply uh, that it relied on because obviously the, historically they would have got wood from Scandinavia, but they couldn't do that during the war as easily. So what happened is after the war, they decided, in case there's another war, we need to make sure that the UK had its own independent wood supply. Uh, So the Forestry Commission was set up to cover more areas of the UK in forests and plantations. Uh, But then what happened is Margaret Thatcher's government came into power and decided to privatise everything. And they basically made this kind of messy tax loophole, which meant that if you planted trees on land, you could deduct the cost of the planting from your payable tax,
1: mm, and okay. at the time, I think
2: the highest tax owners who earned about sixty who paid about sixty percent tax were the ones who benefited, so they bought areas of land to plant trees on. But after a while they ran out of high quality land to plant trees on, so they started buying places in the highlands and the peatlands where they started planting trees. So these trees were never intended to actually really be a valuable crop, because they knew that trees weren't going to grow well. But they could did you they could get a tax rebate.
0: Oh, okay. So just just to avoid taxes, essentially, is that they they started planting the the trees there. Pretty much.
1: That's so insane to think that basically tax evasion, decades ago, has resulted in the peatlands drying up and more carbon being emitted yeah
2: it it's just a mess and even now people don't really want to quite claim that it's such a mess as it really is and some people still try and plant the trees on the peatland and it's always just like okay um we know where this goes and most of the the trees the wood isn't usable and most of it ends up getting sent to biomass boilers and you're like okay this isn't carbon sequestration in the slightest it's not even carbon neutral
1: sorry why are people planting trees there now is it because they want to increase the amount of forest or
2: yeah but the other weird thing is these trees aren't even native to the uk um (laughs) it's a mix of scots Oh, it's not Scots pine or anything, which is native to Scotland. They're conifers, but they're sicker spruce and lodgepole pine. And I believe one comes from Scandinavia, one comes from Canada. And what's even funnier is conifers don't naturally grow in this part of Scotland. The common tree mix here is birch and hazel and rowan. And it's just quite funny because it's not even they're not even natural trees which would ever want to live here.
1: Many, many layers of mess, I guess, then.
0: (laughs) And, I mean, I guess the plantations have now stopped. I would assume they're not growing anymore. Um, The trees are still
2: growing. Uh, They do get taller, but they very often kind of, you have a storm and a whole bunch fall over, because it's not secure soil to grow your roots. And they are making more plantations in some places, but I imagine the peat maybe is shallower. Because there are some areas where they planted it on quite deep peat. And I mean, four meters or deeper.
0: And where can we find the salmon then? <laughs> just, just going back to the title, sorry. Um... Oh.
1: Yeah, I, I was also wondering, I was like, wait, so the fish, where do they come in again?
0: Yeah,
2: I'll explain how those are related. So yeah, then, and parts of the peatland are being restored. So they're having the trees removed. Uh, They're having the drains, because you also have to dig quite deep drains uh, so that you dry the peat out just enough so the tree will actually grow. Um, And all of that water will be flowing into the rivers and the streams. And because you're restoring areas of peatland, uh, you're blocking the drains and then you're restoring it to kind of a more normal hydrological cycle. But there's problems because... Um, As the forests grow on this peatland, which is a very rich organic material, it encourages erosion uh, and a lot of sediment gets washed into these streams and rivers. And salmon, if you've ever seen them spawning, they kind of dig these little um, pits in in the riverbed and they're called a red and they lay their eggs in this. But if there's a large influx of sediment, this can suffocate all of the eggs in the riverbed and then you don't get any more salmon. And very few salmon in uh, Scotland survive breeding. Some do survive breeding, and then they go back into the ocean and come back. But it's quite rare and often quite a lot die. But then there's loads of other things which impact the salmon, because when they hatch into smolts and fry, or they hatch into fry and become smolts after about a year, they rely on the food web within the stream. But all sorts of things are uh, problematic due to the treatment of the peatlands, like high flow regime, because you get these really big peaks of sudden water, where you have all of these ditches which drain the land, and it ro- washes away macroinvertebrates, and it also has problems with, uh, as the trees decompose, after they've been restored, they can release high levels of nitrogen and phosphorus into the water, which can upset the food webs. Uh, There's all sorts of uh, problems that arise from having this really rich, organic, already quite flashy river systems, which become so much more flashier when you have drained like half the catchment.
1: What does a flashy river system mean?
2: Oh, so if you got uh, like a hydrograph where... Uh, you're measuring at one point in the river how much water is coming past you every hour or every unit of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, If there was a rainfall, flashy would mean that all of the rain kind of comes all of the water kind of comes at once. But if you've got a less flashy system, all of the rain is kind of kept high up in the catchment uh, because it takes longer for the water to percolate down into the river. So you'd get a much lower peak. But because these systems, peatlands are really wet. So they're already quite flashy water quickly flows into the river because they're quite saturated. So they're not absorbing the water into the peatland. But because you've dug all of these ditches, things aren't flowing more or less slower overland. They're getting into these ditches and then instantly draining into the river or the stream. So all of the water
0: kind of comes very in a very short period of time.
1: I see, right.
0: And then all that water would then be carrying away all the the prey that the little salmons would be be eating on, right? Yeah. Don't die inside, please. I know that little salmons (laughs) is not exactly the technical term. (laughs) I'll accept
2: it. Don't think of it as like a a tidal wave going down the catchment. That's not really what it is. Uh, But it's just a sudden... But it obviously requires a lot of energy to maintain your position in a stream. So if the water velocity is suddenly becoming a lot higher, it's going to really impact you being able to feed yourself
1: quite regularly,
2: especially if this happens in the wintertime when the salmon are going to be a lot more lethargic and there's going to be a lot less food around.
1: And so has there been like a, has there, has it been seen that there's like a, been a decrease in the salmon populations over the decades or has it not really been followed or?
2: Well, historically salmon used to be common all over Europe. Uh, almost all rivers that terminated in the Atlantic um, had quite good salmon populations. But over time, due to the the joys of overfishing and landscape changes, uh, we slowly wiped them out. And Scotland really maintained their salmon uh, due to different levels of land use uh, and the different kind of land use that they had here and low intensity, especially in the highlands. And they also had other interesting laws, like every Sunday, you weren't allowed to catch fish. You had to take your nets in, and you had to open any dams in the river so that the salmon could come upstream. And that was in like oh the 1400s. Even then, they knew that the salmon needed to come back upstream.
0: Oh wow, that's that's really cool to know. Yeah. Like, uh, do you think that it goes th- back that far? Oh yeah, because people wrote about it. People wrote
2: about how fish populations declined as they increased agriculture and it was often quite hel- interestingly like religious people and priests writing about it i guess because they knew how to write the most and they were interested in may- maybe more day-to-day activities and that one priest i remember in scotland was writing about how the salmon every year would be seen coming upstream and he made the assumption that they spawned in the stream there was already a law, a law eventually made that they had to open these kind of sluice gates to make sure that salmon could get upstream and that they took the nets away every Sunday. And then also in the UK, there used to be the tradition that you weren't allowed to do much work on a Sunday.
1: That's really amazing that it dates so far. Sometimes you forget how much, you know, people actually knew just from these kind of practicalities or practical knowledge in a way.
2: But in recent decades, I think it's hard to tell. I, I'm not sure we really always know because we haven't been doing surveys in the same way as often. People will say that there were a lot more fish a hundred years ago. Uh, this, kind of, this area of Scotland had a massive herring boom in the 1800s and they caught thousands on bowels of herring every every year and they ship them across Europe and then obviously that was overfished uh and now there's very little herring left and I suppose the same could have easily happened to the salmon and there was a period I think in the 1800s to encourage drainage of the peatlands so that you could reclaim the land as they called it uh but Peatland bogs are very nutrient-poor, and even if you could get rid of the water, you're not going to have any nutrients
0: for your plants to grow. And, I mean, I don't want to steal data from you, maybe, but um, how's the salmon going? Like, or have you, have you gotten any, any results on, on the salmon? Just out of curiosity to kind of, like, hopefully end in a higher note? <laughs> <laughs> we
2: have uh, electrofishing campaigns. And you basically go around, you net about a, 50, 100 meters of the river. You put a net at the top and you put a net at the bottom. Then you go around with this magic wand that you wave in the river and it paralyzes the fish briefly and you catch them and you put them in a bucket. And then you measure them and you can guess their age. And then from that, you can kind of work out um, your biomass. Or you can work out, you, can, you get the number of each different year group because they spend two or three years in the rivers and you get a biomass value. So obviously if you have loads of fish in an area, they're, obviously, they're probably going to be a bit smaller because they're not getting as much food. Uh, then if you only had very few, they're probably going to be a lot fatter. Uh, so sometimes it's better to use biomass. And from what we've been looking at over the past few years, uh, the river seem to have kind of stabilized and What We would describe their spawning as saturated. Like we think the rivers have as many young fish in them as they could probably support.
0: Okay, so like, I mean, I guess that's good news in the sense that hopefully these these young um, fish will go downstream and reproduce and then come back in following years. Into the ocean. Yeah, Yeah, sorry, go, go into the ocean and then come back and maintain the population at least
2: yeah but to, to bring it down again it is believed that the problem nowadays isn't in the river they think that the problem is becoming is the ocean uh it depends overfishing or the famine are caught with other fish or that we all the fish farms release diseases onto the natural population
0: okay um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to bring it down again. No, it's a. I mean, <laughs> I guess it's it's better to know a problem to find a solution rather than have no clue what the problem is. Yeah,
1: but is the improved river situation is that a reflection of some new legislation or just like in general a stabilization kind of with the peats?
2: So recently uh, they changed the kind of rule. They used to be able to catch the salmon yourself and then take them home. You can still do fishing, but you have to release the salmon. Uh, But the thing is you can catch the fish, uh, but there's not really that many fish coming back from the sea all, all the time. And a lot of people have had problems where these, you pay to go fishing. And you expect to be able to catch fish. But some years people just can't seem to catch fish and they don't know why. Like here in the highlands where I am is good. But there's other rivers further south where they really don't know why fish aren't coming back. Uh, And it's quite sad in a way because people blame people blame that there's too many seals and there's too many piscivorous birds taking all of them. And while I accept that they will eat the salmon, I feel like the massive trawler ships that are going around the coast may also have a slight problem to do with it.
1: And the millions of people around the world eating salmon.
2: <laughs> but um, I think the legislation is, that they seem to actually be doing as much as they can. And a lot of fishermen really do care and they don't want the salmon to disappear but it isn't really the fly fishermen on the rivers who are actually doing anything wrong. Um, it's this kind of mysterious black box where they go back out to sea and then what happens to them? Or maybe a, you should call it a blue box.
0: A really big blue box. <laughs>
2: a really big blue box and they, they, we're giving them the best out of their life, but uh, something happens to them and we're not really sure why.
1: So I guess we need further research on the matter. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But uh, my I'm not so focused on the marine side, but my job is mainly maintaining and ensuring that we give them the best breeding and spawning ground so that when we solve the problem in the ocean, we can hopefully restore the population as quickly as we can.
0: And now that you mention the the land, ju- just to kind of like change a bit the, the topic... What is it like to be doing your PhD in what is essentially the northernmost point in the island of Great Britain?
1: And actually, sorry, an additional question. How did you decide to like, embark on this topic in particular? What made you interested?
2: So I live, I live in a very northern town called Further, if the listeners don't know. And it is on the north coast of the UK. There's a few islands further north to me, the Orkneys and um, Shetland, but I'm I'm almost as far north as you can go on the mainland. Uh, So it's fairly grey. Occasionally it's sunny, fairly wet. But it is beautiful here. It's the Scottish Highlands. And if you ever look at photo pornography of Scotland, you'll probably see the Scottish Highlands um, with lovely mountains and heathy moors. Uh, and I also recently heard that uh, the Th- a Thai tourist agency got in trouble because they were stealing pictures of Scottish beaches and pretending that they were in Thailand. Wow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Amazing.
2: They have really clear water here and beautiful surfing and the beaches are usually empty. Um, so they had been stealing them and, I think, photoshopping palm trees onto the beaches. Or oh, that's great.
0: I guess the water temperature is slightly different. Oh,
2: yes. It's probably only about 10 degrees, and it's probably the warmest time of year in October.
0: Oh, God, no.
2: I chose it. I was applying to a few PhDs in New York when I, went, when I studied there previously. And I was applying for things which let me go in the field. I like being in an environment. I don't like being locked in a lab all day, even though I do spend a lot of time in a lab. And I wanted to choose somewhere which I hadn't lived, uh, or somewhere where I got to go that was new and an interesting environment, which I thought I could spend a lot of time looking at. I originally actually applied to work with a different kind of peatland, but that PhD fell through because we didn't get funding. But then I applied to uh, that PhD. The person who ran that PhD applied to his friend, who is my current supervisor, uh, and I applied to her PhD at her recommendation. Uh, and my supervisor liked me and thought I was qualified. Uh, and I came to visit this very small town. Uh, it was a miserable day, uh, if I recall rightly.
0: Yeah, I, I will not let you lie on that one. Because I do remember you going on a trip that weekend, and you complaining about the, how long it would take to get even get there. Oh yeah the train
2: from York to where I to further took over 8 hours which is insane uh, no one wants to sit on a, a, an english train for that long uh, but when i came i liked the town i liked the people i met and when i went i went out to see the peatland with my supervisor she showed me some, around some nice places there's a beautiful a place called RSPB Forcenard, which is a nature reserve, and there's a lookout tower where you can look at these beautiful peat pools. And it was just lovely. And I was like, I can imagine spending more time here. Uh, So I accepted the PhD. I was offered it first, obviously. Uh, I didn't just say, I'll have it, thank you very much. Uh, And uh, I've actually really enjoyed my decision. Unfortunately, coronavirus eventually turned up, uh, which was not ideal. I mean, that's, that's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah, it's been a bit problematic, um, to say the least. But I'm marching on,
0: and it seems to be going okay. Okay, is, and how is the situation up there? Because, I mean, I guess the population, there are not that many people, I would assume. So I'm, I'm not sure how how it's working at a, like, in in the town, at least.
2: So, it's currently kind of on lockdown. You're discouraged, and everyone is discouraged from seeing everyone, but there's very few cases in the Highlands currently, uh, probably because no one really has any business to do up here. Uh, so no one really comes. Um, Aberdeen, which is a city nearby that got into, put under lockdown because they had a lot of cases. And I imagine we will go into lockdown with the rest of Scotland because oh, uh, a problem is a lot of people come up here to escape coronavirus and then end up bringing coronavirus with them, um, which is just like, oh, and I think a lot of people come up to do surfing. So occasionally people on weekends, especially drive up, which could bring coronavirus. Scotland is doing its best as it can, I suppose. Uh, you live in Finland, and Finland is doing much better, I believe.
1: Yeah, we have been very lucky with the situation.
2: I guess you're, you can compare yourself to Sweden, who kind of just didn't do anything.
1: Yeah, like, for once, Finns are very happy. They're like, oh, we beat the Swedes at something, at least. But still supporting each other through if there's, if it's anything other than ice hockey.
0: Don't describe Finland and Sweden as friends. They're blood-sworn enemies. Uh, I, was, I was talking with... Um within a region friend that it was just kind of like yeah we we all love each other in like in the nordic countries except the danes we hate the danes
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well they now have all of their mink farms giving people a variant of coronavirus
1: yeah i read about that yeah
2: i had not heard that so weird something i never knew when i lived there but i also used to live in denmark is that one percent of their gdp comes from mink fur farms
1: that's a huge amount
0: yeah wow that is crazy
2: and then so that but they're having to kill all of their mink because humans can give mink coronavirus and then the mink can then mutate the coronavirus and then return it back to them and return the favor
1: But from what I understood, they're now also gonna like stop mink farming. No, no, I was gonna
2: say it's a bit weird that they're still, I didn't even realize anyone was still doing mink farming in like an industrial scale in Europe.
1: We have a lot of um, swamps and like bogs in Finland because Finland is, um, some people might know, it's referred to as the land of a thousand lakes. Um, but Finland in Finnish, it literally is Suomi or Suomi which means like swamp land, or that's one interpretation. So is, is there, are there any similarities, or is there a big difference between or like peatland in Finland versus in Scotland, where you are, Liam? I haven't
2: studied Finnish peatland, uh, but I, from whenever I've seen a Finnish peatland, they do look very different to a Scottish peatland, because our peatlands, t- where I work, is a blanket bog, and it's, there's almost no trees. But from the ones I've seen of Finland and Siberia, you tend to have these kind of areas of mixed trees and peatland. I believe the trees are growing naturally. uh, But where I am, uh, the trees wouldn't really naturally be growing in this bog. But you do see trees occasionally because they grow along the rivers and the streams. And if there's like a mound within the peatland that would naturally keep it drier, I think you would really have trees growing there. But there's this whole thing in... Scotland where a lot of the trees have been have disappeared due to very large populations of deer being kept and the overgrazing of the deer has prevented natural tree regeneration and the only place where you really see trees now are in these steep uh, stream valleys on sides and because the deer and the sheep can't get to them um so this kind of idea of Scotland as this treeless wilderness of beautiful flowering heather and peatland bogs is kind of a bit of a uh, a misrepresentation of what it is Uh, and then if you look at peat cores you can see that there's pollen from birch trees and hazel and these whole areas used to be covered in much more forests um but they've just been lost over time probably due to uh, humans cutting them down and their regeneration being slowed by the way we use the land for keeping sheep and then stocking uh, deer for hunting.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that actually. The, I mean, we have a lot of birch trees here in Finland, and they're very. I think it's one of the most common trees here, actually, if not the most common tree in Finland. And they're always kind of around the swamps and bogs.
0: What what kind of things led you to this this project? Is there any, yeah, like any previous experiences or like work uh, things that you had done uh, during your bachelors that led you into, yes, I want to go to a, a cold place up north, preferably without people?
1: <laughs>
0: I don't know what you could be referencing,
2: to. Um, but I did, during my time at York, I did uh, an Erasmus year, and during my Erasmus year I went to study in Aarhus in Denmark, Uh, and Aarhus is on the little Pernus coming off of Europe, um, the Jutland, and I did uh, some master's courses there uh, because they taught the masters in English and I don't know any Danish, Um, and while I was there, I found out that they had a master's exchange program uh, which I applied to even though I was on my already on my exchange program uh, but they accepted. So while on my exchange of a year, I spent six months of that year on a separate exchange program with my exchange university uh, and I went to Greenland. I worked with the environmental research agency or something with uh, based in nook or Nook, greenland uh which was lovely it's much colder than scotland uh, a lot more snow but it is beautiful um and i got a lot of amazing experiences actually um seeing northern lights seeing uh humpback whales uh, i didn't see any polar bears But I also got wonderful work experience working on all sorts of interesting things with fish and uh, like permafrost and their kind of uh, peatlands up there. And it was all around a pretty amazing experience. And I think that probably helped me quite a lot getting my PhD because I had already worked in a remote place and in quite I would—it's weird to describe Scottish environments as extreme, but I would describe them as not pleasant. Uh, as you can very often be caught out in the rain, and once you're wading like knee deep through a bog, it's not a particularly amazing time uh, to
0: be alive. <laughs> I mean, you were in the caving society, so. I guess you're used to the, to the dark, knee-deep in unknown substances, shall we say.
2: I would say that most of the substances found within caves are quite well known. It's usually
0: just some kind of clay. Oh, okay, clay. Never mind. Um, <laughs> what did you think you were finding? Wano?: uh, No,
2: we don't really have that many bats. I don't ah, we, I oh, know. I didn't really saw that many bats. Probably because the caves weren't large enough at the mouth. One cave I went into, it had a river in it. And you had to go through the river, but there were lampreys in the river. Oh! And you could just feel them, like coming to, like give you a little, 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 little touch, a little feel to feel them you. Oh, I don't,
1: don't like that at all. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, yeah, it wasn't um, a highlight of my life, either.
1: Is Is there any advice you would give to any um, budding petologists Is is that is that the right word?
2: Well uh i would say you're welcome to come do an internship here uh if you want to uh, we're called the environmental research institute in fervo which is part of the united the university of the highlands and islands um and we usually accept interns from all over the place if you are into that or if you want to apply to a phd here i don't really know what other kind of advice i have try and get some other experience to know that you really want to do it because you will be miserable some days working in a island because there's also these little things called midges which are these tiny little biting flies you must have them in finland as well and all over the place and they're horrible and you'll just be swarmed with them and they bite you because they need protein to like lay their eggs
1: very tearful
2: yeah well i know in canada and Siberia, the biting flies can be so bad; uh, they can suck all of, they can suck so much blood out of a young reindeer that it will die.
0: Oh wow!
1: <laughs> That's Pretty, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty speechless at that fact. <laughs> but so, um, but on the flip side, the the best parts
0: of the job. <laughs> so, if you survive the midges, basically. Um... <laughs> You will be given, like, a hat and, like,
2: midi repellent if you come up. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, I'm glad I was not going to just be left there at the elements. It's just kind of like, go there and survive. Pick up some data if you, if you also can, please.
2: Yeah, while you're dying, please collect some stream water or
0: a peak core. Remember to hit send just before you, you run out of blood. Sorry, Katya, you were going to say something nice and I interrupted you.
1: No, no, I was no because I was like, okay, for the listeners, so how like what, what are the perks of the job? Why why should we have more people studying the peatlands?
2: Uh you may get to interact with me at a conference and I'm lovely. Especially when drunk after the after the conference. I think it's probably a good thing to study because I feel like we're going that the world will eventually be paying a lot more attention to climate change and peatlands are a beautiful ecosystem which we need to look at more and see what we can do you don't have to study temperate peatlands you can go study tropical peatlands in like the democratic republic of the congo or malaysia or indonesia or brazil but i think a lot of people enjoy studying that more because they get to have slightly nicer holidays peatlands are lovely and interesting to study and i think we'll We always talk, a lot of this kind of like climate mitigation stuff, they tend to discuss like carbon capture and storage. And I never really understand how they're going to do it and then not spend a huge amount of energy doing it when you could just get the environment to do it for you and store it in soil.
1: That's a solid answer. Yeah, thanks a lot. Mitigate climate
2: change. Do something
0: useful and helpful hopefully well yeah that's really cool um thanks liam and i think that'd be a nice up end before you say anything else and uh, to end the episode in so but before you leave katia what is the fun fact that you have for us today
1: yes so the fun fact for this episode um and i actually heard this fact from another podcast um called there's no such thing as a fish so giving them the credit from the perspective of a potato sorting machine golf balls are the size and weight of a perfect potato to make crisps from and so because of this in the uk you actually can't have golf courses within a certain radius of potato fields so that's that is my fun oh, that's thing. great I, yeah i somehow think that's just very very amusing
0: I, I can, I, I can, I kind of like the image of having this poor soul that is going to eat the perfect crisp and ends up with pieces Light. of yeah, golf. with sliced golf ball in in their mouth.
1: Yeah, like, and so apparently crisps are about um, like the normal average crisp is about um, ten potato cells thick. So that's you'd have a ten potato cell thick slice of golf ball, which I think would be an interesting size
0: great unit by the way um. <laughs> oh that's 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 great <laughs> thank you thank you very much for for that fun fact and thanks a lot liam for for joining us you're very welcome thank you for having me
1: thank you so much for joining us i feel like i am much more informed about the peatlands and thank you of course to our lovely listeners and stay tuned for our next episode goodbye bye
0: If you liked this episode, give it a thumbs up. Rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by The Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? Get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.